This is Healthy Together, presented by RWJ Barnabas Health. RWJ Barnabas Health, let's be healthy together. Visit rwjbh.org to learn more. And now here's our host, WCBS's Marla Diamond. Hello and welcome to our Healthy Together podcast, presented by RWJ Barnabas Health. Today we'll spotlight breast cancer, both from the view of the patient and the physician. We'll look at innovations and treatments bringing new hope to those who have been diagnosed. I spoke with Dr. Su Wang, internist and director of the Chinese Medical Program at Cooperman Barnabas Medical Center and a breast cancer survivor. Dr. Su Wang, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So we've all heard the line that doctors make the worst patients. Do you think that's true in your case? <laughs> yeah, yes, I, I, I am fully transparent about how I uh, was a little in denial. And also, I think I really dragged my feet on getting the diagnosis and the workup. So and I say that as a kind of a warning to everybody that, you know, this can happen to anybody, breast cancer, that is, or any kind of medical diagnosis. And I think, unfortunately, as physicians, we Often, you know, I don't think we we mean to like think we're better than other people, but just that we um, are busy and we often really just kind of uh, don't prioritize our own health. Um, And I think some of it is we just see the spectrum of such severe disease um, that oftentimes uh, even little things in our own personal lives, we don't uh, we we, we just don't prioritize. So, um, yeah, I mean, I got my mammogram, but and there was some, there was a small abnormality in it that that required additional testing, and I I was definitely leaning towards just putting it off and repeating it, um, and thankfully my colleague kind of woke me up and said, hey, you would never say that to another patient, or you would never say that to a patient, and she was right, and so it was good just to have somebody else say, hey, you really need to follow up on this and, and get it scheduled and, and prioritize it. Um, so yeah, that's a good lesson for everybody, I think. And this began with your mom. She was treated for breast cancer. Right. So she had been, she was diagnosed with uh, early stage breast cancer and uh, she lived in Florida, but I had her come up to New Jersey. She had gotten operated on um, by Sarah, Dr. Schaefer, who did a lumpectomy, lumpectomy on her and she had radiation at uh, St. Barnabas Medical Center. Um, And so as soon as she was, when she was done, she was headed back to Florida. She just kind of nudged me and said, hey, you know, are you up to date on your mammogram? And I was actually a couple months late for my yearly. Um, So it was, you know, a a mother's a mother, even if you're a doctor. And uh, she was uh, good at reminding me. So that's what got me to to make sure I did my annual mammogram. so, yeah, and because I had the family history of her having breast cancer and on my father's side, my um, his sister actually had breast cancer and my uh, paternal grandmother had ovarian cancer. I was very concerned about my overall risk of cancer. Um, and so I had opted uh, to do a bilateral mastectomy um, given the strong family history. Uh, so for DCIS, that was, um, you know, there's a range of options, um, and uh, that's uh, that ended up being the best choice for me to do that. Let's go back to your mammogram. Did your delay in a follow-up cause any spread of the cancer? No, I was fortunate because I mine was so, it was early, it was ductal carcinoma in situ, so there was no spread beyond the ducts. Um, but I think that, you know, that was because I I did the mammogram early, but, you know, in another scenario, potentially if I'd had an aggressive kind of cancer, a couple months delay would have potentially led to um, spread. So, 
you know, I think as quickly as you can get those um, studies done, you know, your follow-up studies, and not to say it needs to happen like the next day, I think your, um, you know, your, your care providers, you know, can obviously help you understand also how quickly things need to happen. Um, and so it's good to, to get them in touch. And speaking, I was, I was in contact with Dr. Schaefer during it, so we were having conversations even before everything was finished. Um, so not to say it was truly delayed, it was just that there was part of me that was kind of like, oh, I got to fit this into my schedule, I'm seeing patients. And um, so I don't think it was a true delay, it was just that I, you know, I could, I could sense that part of me was like, ah, it's going to be nothing. Um, and so it's important for people just, you know, to make room for the important things in your life, which is your health. Can you take us back to the day that you got that call that what doctors found was indeed cancerous? Mm-hmm. No, I remember very clearly. It's been exactly two years. It happened on Thanksgiving weekend. Actually, and I was, we were on the way to my, my kids were going to a track meet in the Bronx. And I just remember when she called and I said, wow, this is really happening. Like, this is me. And, uh, you know, suddenly I was at that point. I was like, wow, I wonder what my life is going to be like, you know, what decision points and, you know, how things are going to fold over the, the next couple of months. And I think that's, uh, you know, this obviously hits anybody who gets a big diagnosis like that, um, that there's just so much unknown initially, right? You just don't know what it means. And I think there, you, you could potentially kind of fall into that, that um, you know, just feeling fearful and um, not knowing you know, what it means and potentially just feeling like, uh, extremely overwhelmed. Um, and just something I've learned is that really you just got to take things step by step, right? Like, uh, and especially with breast cancer, because there's so many modalities, it's potentially surgery, it's potentially chemotherapy, it's potentially radiation, and it can happen in a variety of sequences. Not everybody's treatment is going to be the same. You know, some people will need the chemo before they have the surgery, um, and the radiation in your reconstruction could happen, you know, at different times as well. Um, and that can feel overwhelming. Um, and you will see different doctors, right? So you will, and I met with my surgeon and then my oncologist afterwards, and potentially you could be meeting with a radiation oncologist and a plastic surgeon. And I just tell people, no, it will unfold with time, you know, just trust your doctor to give you the information you need at the time. Definitely feel free to ask any questions, um, but it just, the, the, it's a whole journey, um, and, you know, with multiple steps on the way. Um, and that's, you know, I think important for people to realize. So if I got this diagnosis, I'd be right on the internet looking at the treatment, the survival rates. I would imagine as a doctor, you were much better informed. Yeah. So I think as a physician, my go-to is kind of medical literature, right. And looking at, um, what the society recommendations are for breast cancer um, and heading towards that direction. And, you know, I, I still was, it's not my specialty. I do primary care, so I didn't pretend to, like, be an expert in that. And I definitely, when I spoke to Dr. Schaefer, you know, I said, you know, talk to me like I'm any one of your other patients because I want to hear the whole thing. Um, you know, it's important for me to also kind of just hear it from beginning to end because, uh, you know, I'm a patient now and I, you know, I, there are different things I'm concerned about now as the person with it as opposed to, you know, the physician treating somebody with it. And it wasn't until after I had my surgery that I realized, oh, you know, there's a whole nother wealth of resources that come from people who have gone through the experience themselves. So other women who've had breast cancer and that kind of patient support, I think, is also a really important complement to what your physician and your healthcare providers are providing. Um, because there was so much in the day to day that was really helpful for me to hear from other women. Like, how do I, 
How do I handle the pain post-op? How do I handle, you know, just living with, um, with, uh, with, with, with this. So, you know, in terms of special kind of bras or clothing or pillows and, you know, all of that, which is not technically medical, but is just really important part of, um, you know, your day-to-day uh, living with the disease and just, you know, hearing from their experience. I found a great online website, breastcancer.org, that has great medical information, but also a really thriving online community um, as a really important resource for me just to hear from other women and just get some advice um, on my reconstruction journey and also just uh, how I was recovering um, from from being post-op. So, so yeah, that was a surprise because that was definitely not on my radar initially, um, as a physician, uh, but it's something now that, you know, I definitely recommend to patients is to tap into the experience of patients, you know, along with the medical information that we provide them. You care for a large Asian population in northern New Jersey. Are there misconceptions within the community about cancer risk? There definitely are. Yeah, so I'm the medical director for the Center for Asian Health, um, and our uh, goal is to really help provide um, tailored education and uh, and services for the Asian community because there are a number of differences in terms of kind of uh, uh, medical issues that impact us that may be different from the general population. And also there are barriers such as um, just uh, cultural beliefs and um, language barriers that may impact um, people getting good quality care and, and o- their overall health outcome. So yeah, what I what I see, and this is obviously a spectrum of belief, you know, just like with the general population, um, there are a number of pe- people that believe that Asians are at low risk of breast cancer, we won't get it. Um, and I think the myth that if you feel fine, you can't possibly have something, I think it's probably pervasive beyond the Asian population, but I definitely hear that within our patients too. Um, you know, depending on where they grew up, there may not be the concept of preventative health, uh, where you go for annual screenings for an annual checkup that would include a mammogram at a certain age. Um, in some countries, they use ultrasounds more than mammograms, which are not as good at as detecting cancer. And so there's some of that that requires educating uh, patients. And so this helps for us to be able to tailor messages and, you know, for them to hear from me saying it happened to me as well, I think really resonates with them. I've had a number of patients who like basically have never had a mammogram, not interested. And then when I tell them it happened to me, I had no symptoms. Um, then it kind of wakes them up and they, and they think, Oh, uh, and this is what we know in, in, you know, not a lot of health education, health behavior that having, having somebody that, you know, close to you that has had some, something kind of makes it more of a, uh, brings it, brings it, makes it more real, right. That this could potentially happen to you. So I'm always happy to share that experience if I think if it will, if it will help a patient. How are you feeling now and what's your long-term prognosis? I'm feeling great now. Um, I had had my surgery exactly, um, a year ago almost. So it was uh, January 3rd, 2020. Uh, that I had my mastectomies and because of COVID, my reconstruction got delayed. Um, and so I didn't have my exchange surgery until September, um, of 2020. And it was a little bit rough during that, you know, it's a process, the reconstruction. And so what I tell people also is, and this was kind of funny for me as a physician, just kind of in my mindset, I had thought, 
you know, I'm going to have six weeks post-op recovery. I will be back to 100%. You know, when I'm done, I'll be able to, you know, go back, see patients full time and go to these meetings that I was supposed to go to. I was supposed to go to London for a meeting. And I thought, you know, as long as it's six weeks after my surgery, I'll be fine. And it was a little bit of a shakeup for me to recognize that, hey, um, recovery actually happens very incrementally. It's not like from zero to 100%. It really is um, a slower process, at least it was for me, to get up to that 100%. Um, but even at 80% or 70%, I was able to go back to work. I just had to limit myself a little bit. I was more fatigued. Um, you know, I wasn't able to travel like I thought I was able to. I had planned to. Obviously, with COVID, that's put a hamper on things, too. Um, but I would say probably, you know, after by the end of the year, after I was a couple months out of out, reconstruction, I was able to get back to really exercising and doing what I wanted to do. Um, and so I think it's helpful for people to kind of uh, have a – to adjust their expectations and just to realize that um, you just have to let your body heal and uh, it will be, you know, potentially a longer process than you might have anticipated. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's okay. <laughs> so, but now I'm great. Now I'm great. I really feel like pretty much back to normal and able to do what I want to do. And now it just, you know, in hindsight, it's like a bump in the road um, and you get past it. So, you know, I tell people that some, right now it may seem terrible. Like if you just had surgery, you're in a lot of pain, you cannot imagine, um, functioning like that, you know, it will get better. It's not going to be that way, you know, for forever. You're a busy doctor, a mother of four. How important was it for you to get help as you recovered from the surgery? My kids were obviously still going to school during that time. And, I couldn't drive at the beginning, and so I leaned on my mother-in-law. We have a nanny. Friends and neighbors brought food. Um, you know, it's not always easy kind of expecting that help. I mean, like, accepting that help, but I was just reminded that I would do the same for other people, which is true. Um, and it ended up being a really nice part of the healing process, just knowing that people cared. Um, and my staff were amazing, like, in helping kind of accommodate my schedule. And, you know, I told them it was okay to tell the patients and the patients were very understanding. And when, when I did finally see them, they would ask me how I was doing. And, you know, so in some ways it kind of brought my whole community together, you know, it just made us feel, made me feel like, you know, I was really part of um, a network of people who cared. Um, and that was, you know, that was nice too. So before we close, what are the top three things that you would want our listeners to take away from this interview? All right. So top three things I hope people get um, from my story. One is go do all the preventative care that is recommended by your physician and do the follow-up that's recommended um, from those studies, especially from the mammograms. Two is to be your own health advocate in terms of um you know, asking the questions you have, if you have concerns, make sure your provider knows because they can't, we all are out for the same outcome, which is your health. And we can't really tailor a lot of our education or suggestions until we know what your main concerns and priorities are. So don't be afraid to, um, to let your, your providers know about that. And then three, I think it's really important just to have a good outlook and realize that we have the things that, you know, especially with breast cancer, we have amazing tools and interventions and you're in good hands. Um, you know, we're, we're fortunate that so much science and research has happened to it. So I think just being optimistic and, 
you know, giving yourself the benefit of the doubt, you're going to get through it um, and realize that there are a lot of people around there to help you and just to be willing to accept the help and lean on all the resources that are out there, including other patients, uh, is really important. That was Dr. Sue Wang, an internist and the director of the Chinese medical program at Cooperman Barnabas Medical Center on her journey as a breast cancer survivor. Dr. Wang had her surgery and breast reconstruction very close to home choosing her colleague, Dr. Sarah Schaefer, attending surgeon at the Center for Breast Health and Disease Management at Cooperman Barnabas Medical Center. Up next, my interview with Dr. Schaefer about how far we've come in our battle with this disease. We continue with Healthy Together, a podcast presented by RWJ Barnabas Health. Go to rwjbh.org. Now back to your host, Marla Diamond. A diagnosis of breast cancer means something very different today than it did just decades ago. Our podcast, Healthy Together, continues our focus on breast cancer with Dr. Sarah Schaefer, attending surgeon at the Center for Breast Health and Disease Management at Cooperman Barnabas Medical Center. Dr. Schaefer, thanks for joining us on the podcast. You began your career as a breast cancer surgeon 25 years ago. What major changes have you seen in that time? Wow, so many. Um, You know, I think much more emphasis that lumpectomies can be done with smaller cancers. I think that that is a big change. I think, though, for women who need mastectomies or desire mastectomies, a lot of improvements um, in terms of the reconstruction that we can offer women so that they have better outcomes. Um, We also have a lot, like also going along back to the lumpectomies, there is a lot sort of less surgery. We can now take out a lot less lymph nodes during our surgery so that we give people a lot less um, complications with their arm mobility and swelling in their arms. And then I think that my chemotherapy friends have a lot more treatments that they can give. So I'm seeing more and more people who get cures. So a lot more survivors. Dr. Schaefer, let's take a step back and talk about early detection. There's conflicting recommendations about when to begin your mammogram and how often it should be repeated. Can you straighten this out for our listeners? So actually, I think right now, It can be very confusing for women because a number of different places give different recommendations. So the American Cancer Society now says that women, if they're at average risk, could even choose to start with their regular screening mammograms at age 45. But um, the... Uh, national radiology groups will still say that women should consider starting with their mammograms at 40s. And if you talk to most um, breast surgeons, we would also say that women uh, should consider starting their mammograms at age 40 because it's very difficult to say who's the average risk woman. Um, You may not see any you know, family history of breast cancer, but maybe they're a woman, like in my family history case, my mother was an only child, 
and her mother was an only child. There was a lack of family history on my family to really say, am I at average risk? Um, So we still recommend uh, starting at age 40 and then continuing annually. And is it still considered the gold standard of preventive care? Yes, definitely it is the gold standard of care. But I guess with some caveats, we know that some women have dense breast tissue on mammograms. So for those women, we know that mammograms do have a slightly higher risk of missing some things. And so we are very lucky um, to be living in a state that has dense breast laws where women, if they're dense, it's supposed to be discussed with them. And then we can tell them that they have the option either for also doing an ultrasound or perhaps doing a MRI. And it's important to realize because some women will say, well, ultrasounds have no radiation. Why can't I just do the ultrasound? And ultrasounds, though, they um, they are handheld. They can, so they, they can sometimes miss things. And there's some things called calcifications that mammograms can pick up that an ultrasound would miss. So an ultrasound is in addition to a mammogram, not just standalone. And for breast MRIs, one of, I think, the fantastic things that a lot of doctors are now using is that there are ways to do statistically a calculation of what a woman's risk is of breast cancer. These um, statistical models, one is called Tyracusic and one is called the Gale Risk. They're actually available for free on the um, internet. And so in theory, a woman could calculate her own. But using this, it asks questions about the age of the patient, how dense her breast tissue, her height and her weight, um, when she had her first child, whether she's in menopause, if she's had previous breast biopsies, you can calculate a risk, a lifetime risk for breast cancer. And any woman whose risk is 20% or greater, the American Cancer Society is recommending MRIs in addition to mammograms. I'm wondering if you've seen an increase in women skipping their mammogram, these screenings that they once did every year, but maybe they've left it, you know, they, they haven't gone because of the pandemic. So, yes. I have seen more women skipping them, yes, in part because of the pandemic, because they were scared to go out and get their mammograms. They were scared to expose themselves. They weren't sure if their mammograms were happening. I don't think we're seeing, I guess, more breast cancers, but what is sad, I am seeing larger breast cancers because some of these women instead of finding a breast cancer that neither a doctor nor a patient can feel that was picked up just by the mammogram, we're finding breast cancers because the patient is coming back in because they have felt a lump on their self-breast exam. What are the best things women can do? And And men get breast cancer as well. What are the best things we can do to reduce our risk of breast cancer and protect ourselves against breast cancer? So I think one thing 
to realize is mammograms don't protect against breast cancer, but they help us to find breast cancer smaller when the treatments can be smaller. But there is some good, simple things that are good for our health in general that can lower our risk of breast cancer, and I think that we don't talk about them enough. So we know that exercise, as simple as it sounds, is amazing. Uh, Study after study says that exercise can reduce our risk of cancers, including breast cancer, by at the very minimum at least 17%. And there's been some studies that say that it may reduce our risk by as high as 50%. So exercise, extremely important. What I tell people is we haven't done studies enough to say one type of exercise is better than another. So the most important thing, I believe, is finding an exercise that you like, that you enjoy, that you can stick with. Whether it's correct doing weightlifting or whether it's aerobics, um, going out bicycling with your friends, or the aerobics is maybe ballroom dancing. Um, it can be just walking. It can be when my daughters came home, we started doing YouTube videos of abdominal and arm exercises. So whatever like gives you enjoyment that you can stick with is really important. Um, we know that obesity can raise our risk of breast cancer. Um, and this I feel like it's difficult to tell patients like you should lose weight because if doctors knew how to help patients lose weight, there wouldn't be a different diet book like every single week. I'm focusing not so much on crazy diets, but on working on eating a balanced, healthy diet. You recently gave a talk entitled, What You Wish Your Breast Surgeon Had Told You Before Surgery. What questions should we be asking before we go into surgery? Very good questions. And I'll have to tell you that I learned a lot of this over the years from talking to my patients. I think some of the first things to remember is this is not just, I guess, a physical journey. It's an emotional journey. For a lot of women, we're very used to giving of ourselves. We go out of our way to help everyone else. And I think it's important to remember that this is a time that you need to give yourself some self-love. You need to give yourself time to heal. Like I used to focus on, you know, people returning to work perhaps when they physically could, like for our smaller operations for a lumpectomy, oh, you'll just need a few days off. Now I'm much more, okay, you need to, you should take at least two weeks off to give yourself time to physically and emotionally heal. I think also some other little things around surgery. In America, we have this can-do attitude. We also have this belief okay, that you have to have a positive attitude to do well. And I've learned this actually, I've learned from my mother who's been through um, cancer herself. My mom always sees the glass as half empty. So I always reassure my patients, you know, some people have negative feelings and it's okay to let them out and you're not gonna hurt yourself by having negative feelings that my mom is 
has always seen the glass half empty, that she is still a 20-year survivor. Dr. Schaefer, before we conclude, what are the top three things you would like our listeners to know about their breast health? (coughs) Top three things. So, Mm -hmm. yes, go for the mammograms, okay? Um, That breast cancer is these days really curable. We can treat people and they can do well. And I think it's also important for survivors to let their doctors know, you know, if they're having any problems, if they're have, you know, whatever issues that they might be having, even if they don't think it's related to their breast cancer, because there can be interventions where their doctors can step in and help them. I think those are my top three things. Um, and Dr. Schaefer, just as a follow-up, I, I know a while back um, women it was recommended that women who are going through menopause do not take hormone replacement. Has that thinking changed? It has not completely changed. There are some women that may need hormone replacement therapy um, for symptoms, and then we would sort of say the smallest dose that can be helpful for the shortest time. So So we don't say no, but we still say you know, do a very small dose. For women, if they've had their uterus um, removed for a benign condition, estrogen hormone replacement therapy that is estrogen alone does not seem to raise the risk of breast cancer as compared to when it's estrogen and progesterone. So that can be an option for some women. And then for some women, for hormone replacement therapy, you don't necessarily need a pill, but sometimes we get a lot of vaginal dryness or pain with sex from the lack of hormones. And vaginal estrogens are a very, very tiny dose of estrogen that can be used safely for those symptoms. That was Dr. Sarah Schaefer, attending surgeon at the Center for Breast Health and Disease Management at Cooperman Barnabas Medical Center on the new hope for those diagnosed with breast cancer. I'm Marla Diamond. Thank you for joining us on our Healthy Together podcast presented by RWJ Barnabas Health and Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey. Let's beat cancer together. Learn more at rwjbh.org forward slash mammo.